ESPN, Head in the Game. Yes, this is Head in the Game, your ultimate take on the big sporting event of the week. I'm Johnny Hart, stepping in for Jamie, and this week it's all about SW19, otherwise known, of course, as Wimbledon or just simply the Championships. It is without doubt the greatest tennis tournament in the world, bar none. But before we speak to our first guests, let's get our ultimate quick-fire guide to all things Wimbledon in just 60 seconds. Voice is away this week, so his son, Young Voice, has kindly agreed to step into the breach. Young Voice, take it away. Wimbledon is the oldest tennis championship in the world, going all the way back to 1877. Hosted at the All England Tennis and Croquet Club, it is regarded as the most prestigious Grand Slam of them all. Around half a million people attend the two-week tournament, consuming 166,000 servings of strawberries and cream, 29,000 bottles of champagne, and 320,000 glasses of Pims. Oh, and they watch a bit of tennis, too. This year's singles champions will pick up a cheque for £2.2 million, with reigning men's champion Novak Djokovic, favourite to lift the famous gold trophy for the fifth time. Roger Federer holds a record of eight men's titles, and he'll be at SW19 once again in 2019. Angelique Kerber is the current women's title holder after defeating six times champion Serena Williams last year. Martina Navratilova is the most successful ladies' champion ever with nine titles. The longest match ever played took place in 2010 between Nicholas Mahout and John Isner, lasting an incredible 11 hours and five minutes over three days. Isner was the exhausted winner. That record will never be beaten as this year tie breaks have been introduced in the fifth and final set once the score reaches 12 all. Well, that is Young Voice with his ultimate guide to Wimbledon, and he'll be back a little bit later with the quiz. Can't wait for that. So, time to introduce our first guests. It's welcome back to ESPN senior editor Stephen Saunders. How are you? Back for more punishment. Back for more punishment, and things have a different feel to them this week as well. They do, actually. No Jamie. No Jamie. No Rachel. No voice. No vo- And what's going on? It's, it's, it's the end of the empire. It's, it's like the summer holidays have kicked in or something. And I'm delighted to say on the line is ESPN's Darcy Main. How are you, Darcy? I'm well. Thank you for having me. You're an American, but you're in Cornwall and you're going to be in Wimbledon for the next couple of weeks. Yes, that sounds confusing, but it's true. Brilliant to have you. We heard before there are some new additions to the tournament in 2019. And we're no longer going to see these incredible marathon matches after the uh, advent of this uh, fifth set tiebreak. In a way, don't you think it's a shame that we'll never see one of those epic games again? Was it really necessary to change the rules? I agree. I can't, I mean, it's a lot easier to say that as a person not playing, of course. Um, but I agree. I kind of like that John is there a three day match. Like, that's fun. What other sport can you get that? So it's kind of a bummer. They've changed the rules partially because of what happened last year, Stephen, when we had this semi-final between Kevin Anderson and once again, as Darcy mentioned, John Isner. It's always him, isn't it? With that three-hour fifth set. And of course, that affected Kevin Anderson when it came to the final. That was the last straw. Yeah, Kevin Anderson's toenails were falling off by the end of the final. They either chose it for that reason or because our dear colleague Tom Hamilton complained so bitterly about covering the Isner-Anderson match that they thought, (laughs) no, we can't do this anymore. He had to get home, did he? Yeah, sat there for the entire match. Darcy and I were sitting in... uh, uh, nice air-conditioned uh, media <laughs> centre, and Tom was sweltering on centre court. Came back as a liquid human. I did the Isner Mahout match, which was oh, wow. just as bad as the epic Nadal Del Potro match was going on, so I could hear it. What is your 
ultimate memory of Wimbledon. How, how many years have you been doing Wimbledon? This is just my second one. So it was pretty epic to watch Serena Williams last year. Yeah. That for me was incredible, especially her first match back on center court. Just the crowd reception and you could see how emotional she was. And then to obviously get to the final was pretty amazing. Yeah. We'll talk more about Serena in a minute. What, what about you, Stephen? The thing about Wimbledon is, it's we mentioned Glastonbury earlier, it's kind of like being at a tennis music festival. Kind of wander around the place and just happen upon matches that are on the outside courts. Even if you don't have tickets for the main arenas, centre court and court one, you can wander around and pick up some amazing bits of tennis. So I remember the first year that I was down there, and um, I was wandering around and Dustin Brown was playing on one of oh, the outside yes. court and I watched some of his play and I thought he's quite good fun he's playing yeah. with a good spirit about him and then two days later he beat Nadal and it's great for people to be so up close to these guys and, and girls that are playing on these courts they feel like superhumans the way that they're hitting the ball so hard so fast there's this noise that kind of comes off the racket that's amazing and nothing like what when I hit a, a tennis ball sounds like there's just a, a feeling of being at Wimbledon that you can't actually experience unless you've been there. I recommend it to everyone. That's what makes it such a great event, really. There's nothing else like it in sport. To be able to get that up close and personal to these superhuman professionals, plus the the history, and it's a beautiful place to walk. I mean, I am old enough, dare I say it, to remember what it was like before they turned it into the complex that it is now. And I'll let you into a little secret. I've been lucky enough to be at the two greatest finals in history at Wimbledon, live on centre court. Borg McEnroe, yes, it's impossible to believe <laughs> that I was there in 1980. <laughs> and, of course, the Nadal Federal won in 08, I think it was, wasn't it? I wasn't even born for Borg McEnroe, I hate to say it. but I, I, I'm yeah. not surprised. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I wasn't either. <laughs> no, I know. I shouldn't have told you this, should I? They've got a film on at the moment, haven't they? Uh, a special surround sound film of the 1980 final Ball McEnroe which uh, apparently is is wonderful and it's been organized by the All England Club. What about the roof on court 1 Darcy? Again, part of the tradition of Wimbledon and you've got these incredible marathon matches and we've got our rain breaks as well. That isn't going to happen anymore really, is it? Because with the court 1 roof being complete, it means that they're always going to be on target even if Earlier on in the tournament, there are going to be rain-offs because they'll always make up for it with the show courts being able to play some of the matches. We're likely never to see, for instance, a middle Sunday ever again. On a selfish note, I'd love to have a day off in the middle of Wimbledon. <laughs> However, I do love how the weather plays in and, and all these sort of we, when we think about Wimbledon and when we think about all the Grand Slams, sort of the outdoors plays a factor because it's an outdoor sport. And so it, it loses something when you have the roof. But I understand why they would do it, especially from sort of a, a business perspective and trying to keep things on time. But I'm, I'm a stickler for old traditions, as you can tell, guys. So I'm, I'm <laughs> going to kind of miss it. I'm going to miss the fifth set marathons and I'm going to miss some of these uh, rain delays because it's all part of the British summer. Yeah, they'll be able to make up a lot of time on those show courts, but they still will be affected on the outdoor courts or the outside courts. If there's heavy rain, as we've had in the past few weeks in, in Britain, it's looking pretty good 
for Wimbledon uh, in terms of the weather forecast but you might still see some backlog and some log jams of matches and you may well see players having to go from for example being involved in singles matches to doubles matches I mentioned uh, my highlights of watching Wimbledon over the years either there or on uh, TV what about you Stephen? Um, So my highlight overall whether I was there or not was uh, watching Andy Murray win it for the first time just an amazing experience um, for a fellow Scot just to see someone achieving at that level the manner in which he did it was absolutely spectacular. In terms of being there, it's slightly different. It's as much about experiencing it, wandering around and walking past some of the legends of the game, for example. That can be an incredible feeling. Being on centre court for the first time ever is, is quite surreal as well. It's simultaneously smaller and bigger than you expect. And you feel like it's a privilege to be there, though, don't you? Oh, massively, massively. And you know that the, the eyes of the sporting world are on it as well. You really do feel like you're at the epicentre of the sporting universe at that point. You must have felt like that first time you went on to centre court, Darcy. Yeah, I absolutely did. It's something I've watched my whole life on TV, and it had always been sort of on my bucket list, whether I got to cover it for work or go as a fan. I watched it with my grandmother, who is from London originally, and she went as a young girl many times, and it was the only sporting event she really talked about or cared about. And so I would watch it with her growing up, and it was so special to finally make it there. And when I walked in the gates for the first time last year, it was it was really special. And, and getting to center court and just sort of taking it in, strawberries and cream, and pretty great. It's funny when you're working on the media side of it as well, because you're, you're in the, the Wimbledon bubble. Darcy can speak to this a little bit as well, but when you go outside the grounds and you go around where people are camping overnight to queue and get in, you suddenly realize just how coveted it all is. My mom actually came and so I waited in the queue for her so I got out there probably 4.30 or 5 in the morning and was shocked just at the sheer number of people already there and I was even more shocked because everyone was so nice (laughs) and well behaved because coming from American sporting events if you have to wait in the line it's usually not a pretty sight (laughs) I think Wimbledon is the nicest event for so many reasons there's there's no queue jumping No, it's incredible Nobody would dare. And it was so nice. And some, you know, the woman behind me was like, oh, why don't you step out of line to get a cup of tea? And I was like, what? Are you sure? Um, <laughs> it was the nicest experience. I mean, we, we sound like fans more than mm. sports broadcasters. And I think that's probably one of the things that most people who go there are actually genuine fans of the tournament, if not tennis as a whole. It takes different incarnations, I think, depending on who's playing. There is what I refer to as a Roger Day and a non-Roger Day. Yeah. <laughs> and and when, when it's a Roger Day, everyone just talks about Roger. And it's like no one else exists. And they don't even refer to him with his surname. It's just Roger. He's like a member of the family. Perhaps slightly different this year without Andy Murray, but I think you could say that about Andy Murray as well. And um, I agree with you, Stephen. When Andy won the 2013 Wimbledon Farm, and I think that was one of the greatest moments of my life. Yeah. Uh, it sounds crazy. I've never really had more than a bit of a conversation with him, but I think it was just all those years of hurt. It's a bit like England with the World Cup, and for you maybe, Stephen, uh, Scotland with just, the World just, Cup. Just generally yeah. Scottish sport. You, yeah, but yeah. you never expect something like that to actually happen in your lifetime and it really did well there was the terrifying moment where it wasn't going to happen as well when when he was the final game yeah the final game that wouldn't ever end and everyone watching it kind of felt if he doesn't win this game he's going to lose it all just terrifying it went on forever Murray has spoken about that since there's actually parts of that final game he doesn't remember 
it was so pressurised, actually forgets some of the points. But it's great he won like that. Funnily enough, when he played uh, a few years uh, later and he won his second final, it was a bit of an anticlimax in a way, wasn't it? Well, he, he managed to win it in such straightforward fashion yeah. and he was undoubtedly the best player at that point as well. I think that was slightly different when he was facing Djokovic first time round. When he was playing with Ryanich, everyone expected him to win it and he delivered in, in such great fashion and it was how he built on things. Darcy, let's talk about the actual tournament this year. And uh, it's so easy to go back in history, isn't it, with these things. In the men's singles, we've seen these incredible three players, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, dominating for years. And unbelievably, they're still the top three favourites. Can you believe it? I mean, yes and no. At this point, I'm so accustomed to them winning. It will be a shock when someone is able to pull off this upset. But at this point, it almost feels like a given. And frankly, at Wimbledon, it feels like it's a given that it's going to be Djokovic or Federer. It's incredible, the longevity, especially with Federer, what he's been able to do until this point. Between them, they've won... These stats are amazing. 53 Grand Slam titles. <laughs> Federer it's leads, too much math for it, me. It, That's it, how many they have. It is. Federer's got 20. Nadal, 18. Djokovic, 15. <laughs> Novak is the younger of the three, so he could surpass their titles. Let's assume that Nadal's going to win another French Open or two, <laughs> uh, maybe three. <laughs> Or five. Yeah. (laughs) Federer's total is in danger, isn't it? Uh, For sure. It's wild the fact that these three are all playing at the same time. That's what I always go back to. My God. Because if one of them wasn't part of this, think about how many other titles, you know, the other two would have. That to me is what's so remarkable. It's fascinating. Just to add into those stats, if if you include Murray as well, to complete the big four of Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, Murray. The Fab Fab Four. No other player has won the men's Wimbledon title since 2002. Wow. That's astonishing. (laughs) There are are 17-year-olds who have never seen anyone else win Wimbledon. And even all of the Grand Slams included, only Dominic Thiem has reached the Grand Slam final of any player aged under 28 to even reach a final. He's done that twice at the French Open. The dominance that the big three slash big four have on Grand Slams is um, simultaneously astonishing and not astonishing because that five-set difference, the fact that you have to win three sets, it means the element of luck, the element of someone just playing slightly badly for half an hour, 45 minutes, that just doesn't exist. And these guys are so dominant, their class will always shine through. We wouldn't want it any other way. These guys are so brilliant that when they've gone, we'll look back and think, we just took it for granted. For sure. I mean, as fans, I'll say we love the upset. And I do think that's true to an extent. But the reality is, like, when you look at TV ratings, people want to see these guys win. Like, they're so gracious when they win as well. And they're fun to watch. And all of these things we can ask for in the champion. So we've been really lucky and really, really spoiled, I think, as sports fans. And it's been so interesting when you compare the men's side to the women's side. I mean, with the exception of Serena, there just has not been anyone that's particularly dominant for the last several years. So it's just so fascinating because it's so completely different. How much longer do you think these guys can go on for, though, Darcy? The thing is, if you had asked me five years ago, I probably would have have already capped it. So I I don't know. Who am I to say? As long as they stay healthy, and, and it seems like they're all incredibly proactive in maintaining their health. I mean, it feels like Federer could play another two or three seasons, and and maybe that's not even enough. Maybe he'll end up playing past 40. If anyone can do it, I I think it would be him. I think there's a strong chance. I remember when Federer lost last year against Kevin Anderson, and I went to his press conference afterwards, and 
there was part of me that was fully expecting him to say, that's it, I'm hanging it up. Instead, he he never even blinked. He just, you know, dissected how he lost the match and never never thought once about retirement or another chance gone to add to his record. It was very focused. We say this every year, guys. Where are the new challengers and who do you expect to do well, let's just say at this tournament, outside of the top three? There's a few that are, are pushing. Dominic Team, as I mentioned earlier, he's more of a clay court specialist, I guess, but has that experience at least of getting uh, into the, the final of a Grand Slam. Uh, someone like Alex Verev is very well suited to grass. I quite like the look of a young guy from Canada. He's only 18 years old. Felix Auger-Aliassime. He's my dark horse yeah. pick for sure. He reached the semi-finals at Queen's, gave Feliciano Lopez a fright in the in the semi-finals. Looks like he's got a terrific grass court game. He's six foot four, can really boom the ball, has got a lovely touch. He might be one to watch. I think he's seeded maybe around the mid-teens, so might get some favourable draws early on and could cause some damage in the second week. But what about... Djokovic, we haven't really mentioned him much, and it's funny really because uh, <laughs> there's so much emphasis on Federer, Nadal, Andy Murray. Djokovic has got this incredible record. For some reason, he doesn't have that magic charisma that you'd expect for someone who's won so many titles. Why is that? I mean, that's a great question. I think partially because it was Federer and Nadal, really the top two for so long that we became accustomed to sort of talking about them versus anyone else. And then Djokovic kind of came on suddenly joining that mix. So I think just because he came on a little later, he's such a young guy and all, you know, I think that's part of it. Some people think he's a little brash. That's not my feeling. But I I feel like I do constantly hear people say, oh, I just don't like him. Mm. And then you ask them why, and they never really (laughs) have a reason. But it does feel like, yeah, there's more of a dislike, whereas Federer and Nadal are universally beloved, regardless of where you're from. Or even non-tennis fans, the way they speak of Federer uh, in the US, it's sort of how they speak of Tom Brady as an ageless sort of wonder. I think you're right. The fact is he's just not Federer or Nadal. That's it, yeah. Seems very unfair. <laughs> yeah. He sometimes comes across as a bit of a sore unfair. loser as well. There's a little bit of when things are going against them, then there'll be the injury timeouts, or there'll be the histrionics with uh, the umpire. And You say that, but I thought the way he dealt with the aftermath of the defeat to Murray in 2013 mm. was, was wonderful, really. His parents congratulating Judy Murray. Mm. I know we'd waited a very, very long time. And, of course, Djokovic will go down in history as being part of that match. But he was pretty sportsmanlike that day, wasn't he? It was, it was interesting how quickly he switched from being disappointed to have lost the match to delighted that his friend, and they've <laughs> known each other for a, yeah, a, a couple, of, couple of decades. I think yeah. they're only about three days apart in terms yeah. of birthdays. He switched very quickly to just being so happy for his friend. And I think he's spoken about it since and said he was just so happy to be part of that moment. It it will go down in history. Darcy, Andy won't be playing singles this year, but he is in the doubles and actually could win. And I was thinking it's it's actually really good for the doubles competition that there's going to be so much interest in Andy playing, don't you think? Oh, for sure. I love doubles. I think it's very underrated. And I think mixed doubles is the most underrated. My only thing is I wish he was playing with Jamie. I think that would be more attention than anyone would know what to do with. I guess their timing just didn't work out, but that would be amazing. I think it's great. And the fact that he won at Queens is so, what a great story. If he could pull this off, to me, that goes down in history is his work ethic, his comeback, his dedication to the sport and coming back to the game he loves. 
to me, like that is just so commendable. And I think it'll be hard to root against him. That's for sure. And he certainly seems to be really enjoying himself at the moment, Stephen. Yeah, there's a smile on his face. And I think having gone through what he went through at the Australian Open, where he kind of had a, a, a retirement press conference before his... Yeah, we, uh, we discussed his, it on Head in the Game. Mm, we thought that was it. It looked for all the world that he was done. He's almost in the, in the afterlife of his tennis career now. It's like everything's a free hit. Everything he gets from this point forward is, is a bonus. That has completely switched the pressure that was on him uh, for so long, particularly at Wimbledon. It would be quite a comeback if Andy did play singles again. And there are examples of players returning from serious injury in the past. I'm thinking of Del Potro, who has been in tremendous form over the last few years. And actually, he's a crowd favourite as well. I'd have to say, out the other three, probably Del Potro, I think you would agree, is the most popular on the tour. Yeah, because you know what he's been through. It's really hard to root against him. No matter who he's playing, you just sort of find yourself cheering him on because, you know, it's inspirational in a way which is, I think, why people love sports. You want to root for someone that you know this means so much to. You covered his quarterfinal with Nadal last year. That was the one where I was stuck at Isner, if you recall. (laughs) (laughs) And I could hear it. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, so it sounded great. Um, (laughs) I didn't get to watch a moment. (laughs) It was a really great match, Arcee. Yeah, so I've heard, yeah. (laughs) The amount of texts I got from friends who knew I was at Wimbledon was like, I can't believe you saw one of the most epic matches in history. And I didn't have the heart to be like, nope, I was about 500 feet away. (laughs) Let's talk about the women's singles. Some really exciting young players who are already winning Grand Slams. I'm thinking of Ashley Barty, Naomi Osaka. Who's your favourite this year? I'm all in on Barty right now. She is playing such phenomenal tennis. World number one now, just won the French. And she says grass is her favourite surface. She's saying that, and we just saw what she could do on clay, which she considers her weakest. My God, the sky's the limit for her right now. And it just feels like her confidence has really, really been bolstered over the last six months, year or so. Um, I remember watching her play... I think it was in the second round last year against Eugenie Bouchard. And Bouchard almost won, which if you follow Bouchard in the last year or two, that's not great for Barty. She was able to find a way to win. And I remember thinking, wow, if she gets it all together, she's going to be a superstar. And the fact that three years removed from taking a break to play cricket, and here she is world number one at 23, I can only imagine where she'll be in a couple of years. What about the champion Stephen Angelique Kerber, she's had an up and down season, hasn't she? Yeah, her best result in the Grand Slam since winning Wimbledon last year was uh, reaching the last 16 in Australia, and she hasn't won a tournament in a year either. Whether uh, going back on grass can reinvigorate her a little bit, she was clearly the best player over the fortnight last year in the, in the women's side of the tournament. She thoroughly merited her win over Serena Williams in the final. It's funny because there are probably 10 to 12 players on that women's draw who, if they string it together for a fortnight, can win it. Garby Muguruza won it the year before Kerber, and she was exactly the same. She just played great for a fortnight. Someone like Simona Halep or or Naomi Osaka, there's no reason why they can't string it together for that length of time. A little bit of luck with the draw, a little bit of luck with the weather, and it might just fall nicely for someone like Kerber who's gone the course before. Darcy, it's been a tough year for Serena Williams, who is struggling to get back to where she was before she had her baby. Are these, do you think, her twilight years, or could she win again? It would be an amazing story, wouldn't it? 
you know, you can never count out Serena Williams. I mean, she's got 23 Grand Slam titles. She is, to me, the GOAT. And I could go on for four hours, if you guys want, talking about how great I think Serena is. I think she will win another one. Will it be at Wimbledon? Probably not this year. But she is capable of pulling together a run. She can turn it on. Obviously, Wimbledon means so much to her. The fact that she made it to the final last year so soon after coming back is incredible. Um, and the fact that she could do that then makes me think, well, if she was able to do it then, she certainly could do it now. Obviously, she's not played well this year. She didn't even play in a grass tournament leading up. She hasn't made it past the third round since the Australian Open. I, th- I think she was in the quarters there and hasn't made it that far since. That's not a great trend um, going into a Grand Slam. The U.S. Open was her last final. It's tough to say, but you can never, ever, ever count out Serena. Just when you think she's done, she finds a way to pull it together and make a run. Darcy, we're about to speak to uh, Laura Robson, who, of course, you'll know well uh, in, mm-hmm. in a moment or two. But thank you so much for joining us on Head in the Game today and have a great Wimbledon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to Wimbledon this year. Look forward to catching up with you, Darcy. I know. Can't wait to see you. Cheers, Darcy. Bye. ESPN, head in the game. OK, let's continue our head in the game Wimbledon preview and speak to one of the best known British players from the last decade or so. It is Laura Robson. Laura, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Say hello to Stephen Saunders from ESPN as well. Hey, hello. Laura. Hey, good to meet you. Laura, Wimbledon fortnight is my favourite time of the year. It's the heart of what makes the British summer. There is... Nothing quite like it, is there? What does it mean to you? Well, it's for us the most special time of the year and everyone always looks forward to it so much as British players, but also most of us live locally as well. So I grew up in Wimbledon. My house was almost on the back of the practice court. So it's always been special to just be able to walk down from home. And in the last few years, I've moved away from the family home, but it's still that special feeling walking in as a player and also as a member for the rest of the year because during the year and when the tournament's not on it is just a regular club and it's so so special to be a part of it what's your happiest memory playing at Wimbledon over the years I always include the Olympics even though it's not really the tournament but it was at the venue and that was always one of the most special moments for me but I think the one that I always come back to is the first time I ever played on centre court and you kind of walk down that long hallway and as I was starting my walk down, Federer was walking up and he just kind of said, hey Laura, good luck today. Wow. And that, yeah, it's still for me like <laughs> peak, peak tennis moment. It doesn't get much better than that. Well, you couldn't get anything more Wimbledon than that, could you? No. I mean, we were saying before, just one of the great things about Wimbledon is that you get to see these legends up close and personal that you wouldn't get in any other sport. It really is unique. Yeah, I was at Lords yesterday for the cricket, actually, and there was a lot of similarities in that the stadium's actually not that big and you feel quite intimate and no matter where you're sat, you've got a decent view of the players. And when you compare that to some place like US Open, it just feels a bit closer to the action. You mentioned that wonderful London 2012 Olympics for you, winning silver in the mixed uh, with Andy Murray. You must be delighted to see Andy playing doubles again. Yeah, I'm so happy for him. And I've seen him a few times along his rehab process where, you know, at first he was just starting out. And then in the last few weeks when we've seen him at the National Centre, he was obviously hitting quite full out again. And to come back and win your first event back is pretty special. But hopefully he can eventually start doing that in the singles again. 
how good a doubles player is Andy? I mean, he did pretty well in the Davis Cup. Obviously, he's not as good as his brother Jamie, but you've played with him. How good is he as uh, as a doubles player? I think anyone who's that good in singles is always going to transition well. It's not that hard as long as you're confident in your volleys and especially your first serve, which Andy definitely is. I think a lot of those top singles guys always play really, really solid doubles. And you look at Rafa, where he's won almost every big event he's played in doubles, and I'm sure Federer would be the same if they played more often. Laura, how difficult a partner could Andy be? Is this maybe a, the occasional tense moment as you're at the, the changeover and you've maybe hit a shot you would prefer a bit better? Is he, is he difficult? He has that kind of um, that caricature, I guess, of him where, where he's this angry Scotsman. Is he is he softer when he when you're playing with him as his partner? Yeah, not at all. He's he's always really relaxed, and I think he gets you know frustrated with himself that he didn't hit the best shot possible, but never with his partner and. Every time I've played with him, I've always found him really relaxing and reassuring on the on the change of end. So yeah, no problems with that. Am I right in thinking you underwent hip surgery last year? Yeah, I've had two now. Um, yeah, a bit of a granny hip um, and sort of mid rehab process. And is is that a similar type of operation that Andy had, or is it quite different? It's quite different. I mean, he's got a metal hip, mm. so. Yeah, in that way, I'm not quite bionic yet. But <laughs> I think <laughs> any hip surgery is, is never a good one. And, um, you know, there's a lot of players going through it right now, wrists and hips and everything. So there seems to be quite a few surgeries happening, but hopefully everyone gets back on court really healthy. You will have that, that sympathy with him for the long process of coming back from a, an injury like that. And what is the hardest part of that rehab process? Well, it's definitely the long days initially where you're first starting to get back in the gym, get back on the bike, things like that. But I think it's also really difficult when you start playing matches again, where you have your own expectations of how you think you're going to play and you think you're going to be exactly as good as you were. But it takes a lot of time to build that up again. And I'm sure Andy knows that and has all the right people around him. So, yeah, hopefully we'll see him back on the singles court. And how are you at the moment, Laura, in terms of your fitness? I'm just sort of mid-rehab process. I'm not back on court yet and still got a little bit of ways to go, but hopefully by sort of mid-August is the idea. Have you ever talked about getting back the old team together and playing mixed doubles with Andy again? Oh, I think he's got better options than me. (laughs) (laughs) That can't be true. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure Ash Barty uh, was on the lineup for Wimbledon. So, oh, wow. yeah, I, I reckon that's a pretty solid choice. <laughs> that I'd quite like to see, actually, I, I must say. With all of your uh, injury problems that you've had in recent years, you have swapped your tennis racket for a microphone. You've done pretty well. Are you enjoying that? Um, yeah, I've done bits and bobs and sort of had a bit of practice with Claire Balding at um, Fed Cup, which was really great experience. and. You know, live TV, when you compare it to the commentary side of things, it's a different ball game. Yeah, I'll be at Wimbledon on the other side of the fence in the, in the commentary booth. And yeah, I actually think the days are longer on the media side of it, you know. They definitely are, Laura. I can say yeah, that as an editor. They are. definitely are. You, you players have got it easy. Yeah, I know. That's what I keep telling them, but they don't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, usually the pub is closed by the time, actually, that you, you, can, you can do anything. It's about 11 o'clock at night, isn't <laughs> Completely it, Completely really? true. Completely true. Uh, you have an easy life, you tennis players. Uh, you mentioned <laughs> the Fed Cup, and uh, we've had some great success this year. And you've said that you would like to be part of the team. Is that still an achievable aim as far as you're concerned at the moment? 
Yeah, I don't see why not. And I think the beauty of the GB Fed Cup team at the moment is that there's so many options that Antioch of them put forward and it can always change around based on people's schedules and especially now with the changes that might be made to the whole format. I'm not sure going forward how that's going to work. But yeah, some unbelievable results for the girls earlier in the year, especially in front of two home crowds in Bath and then again in East London. So yeah, if we can get another home tie next year, that would be really ideal. And it would be great for British women's tennis. And uh, talking of British women, our best hopes this year are with Joanna Conter. But is she capable of winning Wimbledon or at least getting to the latter stages? Well, she's made the semi-finals before and I don't think you can ever discount that. And she's playing really, really good tennis at the minute and had a great result in Paris. And it's quite tough to bounce back after a massive result like that. And so... I think she's done really well playing a few of the grass tournaments in the lead-up. She'll be feeling pretty comfortable on the courts at Wimbledon. Laura, what do you think has been the, the change for Jo in the, in the last couple of months? Uh, because she was having a bit of a lean time of things, but then just played fantastically well in, in Paris, where I don't think she'd won a match before her run to the semi-finals. Um, what, what's made the big difference? Well, she's got a new coach in her team. Um, don't ask me to recite his name off the top of my head, <laughs> because it's a difficult one. Um, but yeah, I think he's made a big impact. She was looking for someone after that amazing year that she had to sort of back that up with. And if you don't have the right partnership with your team, then that's always going to be difficult. But she's always been very sure of herself and knows exactly what she needs to do out there. Just in the last few months, she started to bring that together again. And it's great to see. Laura, one of the big stories about British players this year is this amazing teenager, Fran Jones. She's got this genetic disorder and she's had to have operations, meaning she just has eight fingers and seven toes, and she's got a, a wild card into the first round. What a story. Uh, tell us about Fran. Well, I actually did the off-season with her last year in Florida, and so I spent quite a lot of time with her. She's at the National Centre a lot too. Uh, growing up, we didn't see a lot of her because she was practising in Spain and speaks perfect Spanish. Yeah, she's doing better than most of us in the languages, but I think it's really, really special what she's been able to do on court and when you watch her you wouldn't know that there's any sort of disorder and she never ever sort of brings it up or anything like that never makes excuses for herself so I think it's amazing amazing that she's able to get out there with you know these top girls now the Brits at Wimbledon all seem to have a great camaraderie as well you, you see the other the other British players supporting each other and why is that and does that exist for for other nations as well or is that quite a British thing I think a lot of us grew up together and your friends based on that but we all train in pretty much the same place at the National Centre in Roehampton but you know Liam Brody who made last round of qualifying today I've known since I was seven so it, it all comes together like that and you know we all like to practice together we've all done a few off seasons too but you see it amongst the other countries as well I was at uh, the Wimbledon qualifying yesterday and there's about 15 Aussie players watching a guy called Jason Kubler and they're all supporting him so I think it's really nice when you have that environment amongst your own country. What other up-and-coming British players should we look out for this year? Paul Jubb is a really interesting prospect on the men's side. Uh, he won the college NCAAs this year, first Brit to ever do it. And, you know, Cam Norrie has been through that process and he didn't even do it and he's now top 50. So I think it's a really great opportunity for Paul to do, you know, to just enjoy his experience. He's never played a tournament like this before and he's going to go out onto probably quite a big court and soak it up and I think he's he's ready to enjoy that. But in the last few weeks he's also had a couple of decent results getting his first few challenger wins 
in some of the smaller grass events that we've had. What about the general state of British tennis at the moment, Laura? How good a place are we? I mean, I think we're doing pretty all right, you know, and it's kind of that old, you know, what's wrong with British tennis that everyone always seems to bring up. But, you know, they announced today that in the next sort of 10 years, they're going to build a lot more indoor centres and try and get a lot more people playing throughout the year rather than just in the summer. And I think that's just going to help the game grow massively. But at the moment where it's at, I think we've got a great Fed Cup team and we've got a couple of young junior male players coming up in, in Paul and Jack Draper as well. I really don't think it's that dark. On the men's side as well, we've got um, Kyle Edmund, who doesn't have the best record on grass, but do you think that he can make an impact? Yeah, definitely. Anyone with his forehand is going to make mm. an impact on any surface. You know, Kyle's been under the radar a bit the last few weeks, and maybe that will help him. But you've also got Cam Norrie, Dan Evans is doing great on the grass. So there's a few people to watch out for, rather than usually it's just Andy. What are the nerves like for British players before they play their first match at Wimbledon? Is it different from other tournaments? It is a bit different. I think all the Brits put a bit more pressure on themselves to do well and you want to play your absolute best out there in front of your family and the home crowd and generally most of us don't have our families watching that often so for them to be at the tournament makes a massive difference but you know some players really try and soak up I think Dan Evans is one of those players and you see he's done some great results over the past few weeks so I'd sort of be looking at him to maybe squeak through to the second week we'll see. So you're going to be mainly on uh, media duties in the next couple of weeks, are you? I am, yeah. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to watching a lot of tennis. Well, we wish you well, and uh, especially in your recovery over the next uh, few weeks and months, and we want to see you back on court, Laura. Thank you, yeah. I hope to be back very soon. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us today. Good speaking with you, Laura. Thank, Thank you. you. That's Laura Robson there, and it would be brilliant to see her back on court she's been so unfortunate over the last few years and she really was such a big hope for british tennis i really want to see her do well yeah she's uh, she's a lovely person and uh, a really a great tennis player as well and it's really just the injuries that have got in the way and there's, there's a few british players who have been impacted like that as well so fingers crossed she's on the men very soon okay Stephen, it's the big one it's the head in the game quiz you've been on this show how many times four times now four times you've never won it i i think uh, i think i've been cheated a couple of times at least here's your opportunity there's no jamie today no jamie that makes it much easier there's no rachel chief cheats is not here it's the head in the game quiz yes it's the head in the game quiz multiple choice round one Stephen. The first player to be disqualified from Wimbledon during the Open era was A. Nick Kyrgios, B. Tim Henman, C. Ilya Nastasi, D. John McEnroe. That's so easy. Oh, the first one. I'm going to go with Tim Henman. Correct! He struck a ball at a ball girl! Oh, yes, I remember that now. Yeah. yeah. Of all people, yeah, eh? Bad boy, too. Yeah, yeah. Johnny, your good turn. question. Yeah. What did Lily de Alvarez do on centre court in 1931 that had never been done before? A. She conceded the game after three double faults. B. She stormed off court after a bad line call. C. She wore shorts. D. She won a tiebreaker. <sighs> shorts? Correct! Stephen, what is Parthenocissus tricuspidata? A, the medical term for tennis elbow. 
B. The type of ivy on centre court. C. The type of strawberries served at Wimbledon. D. The traditional Wimbledon motto, meaning giants are made here. Can you just repeat the question, please? <laughs> no, I can't. Cruel. <laughs> <laughs> what is Parthenocissus tricuspidata? I think you should get oh, a point. Oh, that, now, now I understand yeah. what it means. Um, I'm going to go with tennis elbow. Unfortunately oh. not. It's the type mm. of ivy on centre court. Oh. Also known as Boston Ivy. Oh, if you'd said that. Johnny, the first winners of the mixed doubles at Wimbledon were called A. Tucky and Crisp, B. Crispy and Tuck, C. Tucky and Duck, or D. Crispy and Tucker. I'm getting very confused here. Um, uh, I'm just going to say C. Unfortunately not. It was A, Tucky and Crisp, Agnes Tucky and Hope Crisp in 1913. Blimey. 1-1. Into the draw, false round. Steve, at 146 miles per hour, Andy Roddick holds the record for the fastest ever serve at Wimbledon. True. Unfortunately not, it's false. It's Taylor Dent at 148 miles per hour. Johnny, at 105 decibels, Maria Sharapova holds the record for the loudest grunt. Right. Heads or tails, isn't it, really? <laughs> uh, true. It is true. It's the equivalent of standing behind an accelerating motorcycle. Steve, <laughs> the Wimbledon logo initially featured a squirrel, a nod to the wildlife in the area where the courts were first built. Yeah, that could be true, yeah. Well, it isn't. It's false, oh. I'm afraid. What a shame. Johnny, Greg Rosetsky is a keen miniature model maker and created an exact replica of Wimbledon, which is in the All England Club Museum. It sounds like the sort of thing that Boris Johnson might do, but I, I can't really see Greg Rosetsky doing that. Is your answer true or false, Johnny? Uh, false. It is false, but wouldn't it be great? Oh, he's, he's such a huge person. Imagine he had the miniature Wimbledon yeah. going on. That'd I've be got brilliant. a picture of Greg Rosetsky with my mum, and there's about a foot and a half between yeah. them. Was he holding a model? No, maybe. Oh. Oh. <laughs> On with round three. They said what? Fill in the blanks from quotes by Wimbledon legends. Steve, John McEnroe once said, I didn't blank and blank until Wimbledon 77. Uh, serve and volley. Correct! Ooh. Johnny, I had a Skoda, but after Wimbledon, I changed to a blank. That's Petra Kvitova. Uh, Ferrari? BMW, I'm afraid. Mm. Steve, 2013 women's champion, Marion Bartoli said, to blank on court during a Wimbledon final, you must feel so lonely. Oh, goodness. Um, grunt? I'm afraid not. It's cry. And ah. Johnny, the final question. And Tracy Austin with her claim to fame, I won the Wimbledon mixed doubles title in blank. What year? Oh. Uh, He's old enough to remember. That's the thing. Ah, okay. Uh, Borg McEnroe year, 1980. Correct! Yes! <laughs> and the winner is, on that fifth set tiebreaker, Johnny! He needed a prompt from me, I'm cheating you against Steve, Steve, you lose Steve again! Lose. Let's share it. That's, that's what are you going fair. to do, that's Steve? You're going to have to come back! <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to win this, are you? Never. I'm pleased we shared the spoils there, Stephen. I thought it was very generous of you. It, it feels like uh, the gentlemanly thing to do. Uh, very much in keeping with Wimbledon, right? Very much so. And we're sitting here in our white. You know, we've got our towels, we've Not got our white. water. Anyway, that is about all for this week. Don't forget to subscribe for free and, of course, uh, review this podcast. Jamie will be back next time for the last in the current series when we look ahead to the Open Championship Golf. Stephen, have you enjoyed uh, the Jamie-less 
podcast. I, I wouldn't like to say I've enjoyed it more, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, let's do it like a tennis match. Let's try. Keep your head in. in. No, no that's wrong. you shouldn't say keep your. Are <laughs> <laughs> we just doing are you, head are in you, the game? Are you underarming Sammy? Is that what's good? <laughs> until then, keep your head in the game. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. ESPN, head in the game. <laughs>